1: Please be advised that the descriptions in this podcast are graphic. This is Chapter 10 of Blood and Truth, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Today, another chance. I'm Leonora LaPeter Anton. This story is about a man who has served 44 years on Florida's death row. He says he's innocent. For more than two decades, he's been asking the state to allow for complete DNA tests of the evidence in his case. Florida keeps saying no. If you've listened to earlier episodes, you know Tommy Ziegler was convicted of shooting and killing his wife, in-laws, and another man, Charlie Mays, inside his family's furniture store on Christmas Eve 1975. Ziegler said he fought with Mays and others who tried to rob him. He fired a gun and was shot in the stomach. When we left off almost a year ago, Ziegler and his lawyers were hopeful that State Attorney Aramis Ayala would give him another chance at DNA testing the evidence in his case. Ayala, a death penalty opponent, said the case would receive a thorough review. Here's what happened in 2019. Last March, Tommy Ziegler's New York attorneys flew to Orlando to meet with Ayala's Conviction Integrity Unit. The unit had been set up the year before to review cases where there were questions of innocence. The lawyers sat around a table in a small, windowless conference room at Ayala's office next to the courthouse. They described the ultra-modern forensic tests they wanted scientists to perform on clothing, guns, and fingernail scrapings still in evidence. They explained how the DNA would prove that Ziegler hadn't murdered his family. Monique Houghton-Warrell, the unit's director, and Ray E. Laboda, a Florida A&M University law school intern and retired Dallas police officer, listened intently.
2: These victims were shot with large caliber bullets at point-blank range in the head repeatedly with no exit wounds, but that is uh, ideal conditions for con- for creating a massive amount of backspattered blood onto the perpetrator, that the backspattered blood would cover the perpetrator in a fine mist of easily detectable uh, DNA-laden material, namely blood, from their eyeglasses to their shirt to their pants to their shoes, head to toe.
1: That's David Micheli, one of Ziegler's appeals lawyers and a DNA expert. Michael Lee's firm was willing to pay for the forensic tests, whatever the cost. They asked the unit to support their appeal for advanced DNA testing. This was their sixth request. Terry Hadley, Ziegler's original lawyer, walked away optimistic.
3: When we were interviewed by her team, they were doing the review of the case, uh, and they gave us several hours in the morning when we sat down with them. It was the first time in the history of this case that I thought the state attorney's office was listening
1: But then, spring turned to summer, and there was no word. I asked the spokeswoman for the Ninth Judicial Circuit over and over if Ayala would grant me an interview. Her office had not announced anything publicly about the review of Ziegler's case. She's not going to talk to you, Ayala's spokesperson said again in late August, rejecting my 8th request. In September, I tried another approach. I submitted a public records request seeking documents and emails from Ayala's Conviction Integrity Unit on the Ziegler case. I was fishing, had no idea what I'd get, if anything. When the documents arrived in my email inbox about five weeks later, I felt sure I was looking at something the state attorney would not have wanted me to see. The paper trail revealed what had been happening in Ayala's office as we all waited for word. Turns out on April 10th, 2019, weeks after Ziegler's lawyers went to Orlando, the unit submitted a memo to Ayala recommending she support Ziegler's request for forensic analysis. It said the state had a moral obligation to embrace the opportunity to show that they did it right. Worrell later told me that Ziegler clearly had not received a fair trial. She had taught a legal clinic at the University of Florida for 16 years and studied conviction integrity units from across the country before starting the one in Orlando.
4: The fact that he was originally sentenced to life by the jury and the judge overrode that sentence and sentenced him to death, Uh, the fact that the judge in his case had some sort of negative personal involvement with him in a prior uh, case, that was of concern to me. The fact that there was a jury, a juror on the case, who was expressing her difficulty and the judge had her prescribed some sort of sedative. That was of concern to me. So there were procedural things that happened in the in the course of the trial that concerned me um, as to whether or not we, the system, could have made an error in this case and if there was a way that we could resolve that with just DNA testing. Um, i was I was willing to do that, and I thought I thought that we should.
1: Laboda, Worrell's intern, spent thirty three years as a police officer, twenty of them as a homicide detective, and he had spent two hundred and fifty hours reviewing Ziegler's case. He believed those who testified against Ziegler, but he also supported the testing.
2: You're
4: talking about putting a guy to death plain and simple. all right. So the state has a moral obligation to ensure that whatever it does, it does correctly and so that there's no, like, second thoughts, you know, no, nobody coming back and, and,
2: uh, and saying, yeah, well, we, we probably should have investigated this just a little bit more.
1: There were two versions of the memo written by LaBoda and Worrell in the documents I received from Ayala's Public Information Office. One was marked up with blue, red, and yellow ink. Those notes showed that in late July, others in Ayala's office, including her chief of investigations, questioned many of the details in the memo and its overall conclusion. Here's Hadley, Ziegler's attorney in 1976.
3: And there were notes uh, that... You know, that's the one to ask about. How do we know that the jury recommended committed mercy? I mean, I couldn't believe it. The, the absurdity of that actual notation.
1: Another document I received was a memo written by Amanda Simpaio Bova, who became the unit director when Worrell left last summer. It was dated September 6th, the day after I submitted my records request. Bova had begun her job two months earlier. She wrote in her memo that she had not had the time to personally examine the entire case file. But she had reviewed enough, she said, to be familiar with the facts. She argued against Ziegler's request. The DNA testing, she concluded, would not exonerate him. Bova went on to explain that she and the chief of investigations, a man named William Eric Edwards, met with Ayala on July thirty first to discuss concerns they have with the Conviction Integrity Unit's recommendation. Edwards joined the office in 2013 under Ayala's predecessor, Jeff Ashton, who regularly fought Ziegler's DNA requests. Quote, you advised that you had personally reviewed the case and found that further investigation was unwarranted, end quote, Bova wrote to Ayala. But no one told Ziegler's attorneys. Here's Michael Lee.
2: What happened in the last year is that we read an article in your newspaper saying that apparently our request had been denied. And that, believe it or not, was the first that we heard of it. Um, we, we, The state attorney's office had not bothered to contact us to let us know, despite the fact that we reached out to them on an essentially monthly basis to ask for updates.
1: Even after I wrote a story about these documents, Michael, he said, he still didn't hear from Ayala, so he sent a Freedom of Information Act request to her office, just like I had.
2: What we received was a copy of a letter that the state attorney uh, apparently wrote after we made our requests, confirming your article, saying that the request had been denied. Um, but that letter was never even sent to us. So it, it is hugely disappointing on many fronts.
1: In her letter to the lawyers, dated November 5th, Ayala said she was sorry that the case had been discussed in the news media before she shared her decision with the lawyers privately. She said she examined the case when she first took office and decided against DNA testing, but agreed to a unit review nonetheless. Like Bova, she felt it wouldn't exonerate Ziegler. That distinction is what separates a lot of those rejected from those who have been able to get DNA testing in Florida. Courts and prosecutors tend to grant DNA testing if it will prove innocence. Say, for instance, you were convicted of a rape and the DNA could point to a different attacker. But most of those on death row have other evidence against them. As a result, you won't find many death row inmates in Florida exonerated by DNA. There have only been two, and one was exonerated after he died of cancer while still in prison. Here's Hadley, Ziegler's trial lawyer.
3: Yeah, the standard there, there it's just absurd. So I'm angry about this.
1: Worrell, the former Conviction Integrity Unit director, said she understands the state attorney's position, even if she doesn't agree with it.
4: In the conviction integrity world, the general philosophy is that further DNA testing can't hurt a case. It can only help us to prevent someone who's innocent um, from maintaining a wrongful conviction. The, The standard theory of prosecution is more along the lines that unless this piece of evidence is going to prove innocence then it's not necessary to go further with investigating. Um, So that's, I think, uh, just a fundamental difference of thought.
1: When I did my original research for Blood and Truth, I looked through every death case in Florida to see how many had been denied DNA testing as Tommy Ziegler had. I found that Ziegler was one of almost two dozen men sent to death row in the 1970s and 1980s who hadn't been able to get advanced DNA testing, even though Florida passed a law in 2001 to create the opportunity. Eight men had been executed without DNA testing. And death row inmates aren't the only ones struggling to obtain forensic analysis. Those facing lesser sentences, including life, are also often rejected. Mike Lee says this is a problem all over the country. So if we, if we take a step
2: back, it is very clear from this case and many other cases that the state of Florida and other states as well uh, have erected many, many obstacles to defendants convicted in the pre-DNA era using DNA testing to prove their innocence. And many of those obstacles are procedural in nature. So Tommy Ziegler has been seeking DNA testing for approximately 25 years which is a staggering amount of time. I think that any revision to the law that clarifies the standard and clarifies that the courts can't just um, set an impossible threshold for DNA testing would be a tremendous benefit to Tommy and to others similarly situated, but also to uh, anybody that cares about justice and decency, which is all of us, and to the taxpayers. Because let's not forget that The consequence of applying the the DNA law the way they are right now, which is basically to make it really hard to get DNA testing and then to deny things and require uh, appeal after appeal after appeal. The consequence of all of that is that the system is burdened with a tremendous amount of legal work that costs taxpayers a fortune and... People who are wrongfully convicted sit and rot in jail for years and years and years when the evidence that would free them is sitting there right before our eyes.
1: Recently, I asked Ayala again if she would talk to me, and she agreed.
5: I, um... Quite frankly, I'll be very candid with you. I had no intent on ever discussing it um, necessarily in too too much depth, but I think we've reached a point that it does require um, a bit more um, explanation, and I want to offer that to you.
1: Ayala has worked as both a prosecutor and a public defender. She won her seat in 2016 from former State Attorney Ashton in 2017, she announced that she would no longer seek the death penalty in the Ninth Judicial Circuit, which includes Orange and Osceola counties. That prompted former Governor Rick Scott to remove two dozen potential death penalty cases from her jurisdiction and give them to another prosecutor. She fought the move in court, but lost. Her budget was cut by $1.3 million, and she had to eliminate 21 positions. She said that has had an impact on the Conviction Integrity Unit.
5: So... Despite that, it was an important um, initiative. I went forward, and at that time when we started it, all I had was um, the director and the paralegal. This is in stark contrast to what a fully functioning unit would have been. Um, That would include a director, a staff attorney, um, program assistant slash paralegal, and a a full-time investigator. So, completely different.
1: Ayala said she read the entire transcript in Ziegler's case. She went over the appellate orders and discovery, she said the arguments now in his case aren't about whether he deserves the death penalty. They're about whether he's innocent.
5: I left it open on multiple times asking his attorneys remaining open to the possibility of additional information. If you can point to me somewhere in the, in the file that shows me where it would be an actual claim of innocence, I'm open to it. To this day, I have not seen that. I believe that if a person, if there is DNA out there that could possibly exonerate someone and definitely take them off death row, they should be entitled to that. I do not, however, believe that if there is a conversation of DNA with multiple different theories and that it still would end up in a trial, that we spend the energy or give people false hope that it could be something different.
1: I went through all the lawyers' arguments with Ayala. That whoever shot Ziegler's wife and mother-in-law, whoever bludgeoned Ziegler's father-in-law, would have been showered with a fine mist of blood that scientists could find all these years later. The lawyers say it would show if Ziegler did it. Debris beneath the father-in-law's fingernails could show who he fought. Wouldn't she be interested in seeing if someone else was involved?
5: The DNA. Testing doesn't eliminate those witnesses who say that he was there with a firearm, that they were threatened, that like it doesn't eliminate that direct evidence as it relates to his involvement. It creates a conversation. It creates reasonable doubt that may allow attorneys to argue something, but I, this is not the scenario where, you know, there's been a, you know, a robbery or a sexual battery where the absence of DNA, if you will, will say that there's no way that the person was there. He's admitted that. To being at the
1: scene. Those witnesses she's talking about are Edward Williams, Ziegler's handyman, and Felton Thomas, a fruit picker. Williams testified that he was helping Ziegler make last-minute deliveries from the furniture store when Ziegler tried to shoot him. He said Ziegler handed him the gun when it misfired. It ended up being one of the murder weapons. Williams fled and later turned it over to police. The other witness, Thomas, said he and Mays, one of the four victims, Drove to the store to pick up a TV for May's family. A white man, whom Mays referred to as Ziegler's, took them to an orange grove where he asked them to shoot some guns. They returned to the store, but Thomas didn't feel right about it, so he did not follow May's inside. Here's Ayala again.
5: There, there, there were witnesses who I cannot find any motive legitimate motive to say that they would make up these stories run for their lives go give information i cannot eliminate though that those facts. so uh, if that did not exist then that would be the answer to your question but when you have actual witnesses it is no longer a circumstantial case
1: ziegler's lawyers and his supporters believe the case is circumstantial they point out neither williams nor thomas said they saw ziegler kill anyone And Thomas, the fruit picker, has since said he only met Ziegler one time briefly. He told Ziegler's private investigator that he was never offered a photo lineup. Instead, he said, police told him who Ziegler was in court. Michael Lee, one of Ziegler's attorneys, says that neither man is a reliable witness. Williams, the handyman, said he put the gun that Ziegler gave him in his pants pocket that night. But when Ziegler's lawyers had his pocket tested for gunshot residue, none was found. His boots had no scuff marks and still had the tags on the bottom. Ziegler's attorneys have always speculated he changed clothes. There is a possibility, they say, he may have been involved in the robbery attempt. They are so convinced that Ziegler is innocent, they're willing to spend as much as a million dollars on the DNA tests. That's what they've been told they could cost.
2: We're proposing what, in our view, is the most comprehensive DNA testing in a criminal case ever literally as comprehensive as science can make it. And all of the experts have told us that that is overkill. Nobody does it this way. And we've said we know, and we understand that it should not be necessary, that you should be able to do normal DNA testing, and if that testing shows that he's innocent, that should be good enough. But the courts are setting the bar impossibly high, and they're saying you need to prove beyond any possible doubt that he could not have done it. They're not using those words, but that's effectively the standard they're applying. Even when we say that, uh, the courts and the system turn down the requests. And that says something, not just about the way the system is handling Tommy Zewer's case, but the way the system is handling defendants' requests for DNA testing far more broadly.
1: Last June, Republican Representative Jamie Grant of Tampa, chairman of the House's Criminal Justice Subcommittee, instructed his staff to research how other states handle DNA testing. He'd seen Making a Murderer on Netflix. He'd listened to the Blood and Truth podcast on a trip up and back to Tallahassee.
0: Your work and and the reporting you had done kind of put skin in a face and a case around um, some of the things that that we knew were true when it came to um, forensic evidence and um, where there were probably some inequities and some injustices.
1: Grant is 37. He was elected almost a decade ago to the Florida House. His father, a well-known politician, served in both the Florida House and Senate for two decades. Like his father and his brother, he's a lawyer. He believed forensic science reforms were needed in Florida.
0: It's always kind of irked me that, that um, a judge sitting on the bench has to get inside the mind of a jury and suggest that they know whether or not it would have changed the jury's outcome.
1: Grant said his staff patterned the bill after one in Arizona. Inmates would be required to go through the courts to obtain the testing, and there would be some limits. But no inmate would be denied, as Ziegler has been, just because the test alone might not prove innocence.
0: When we first start by looking at Florida, Um, we have really only one standard and it's a really high standard. Um, and so when we look back at those cases, somebody like Tommy at that point in time, now today, effectively has to identify their perpetrator. I like to think, and and I think it's hard to, to argue otherwise, that going and testing DNA to find out what DNA is on pants or shirts or any other piece of evidence in Tommy's case or a similar case, um, is not a bad thing. Because it either leads us to a place as a society and a culture that um, increases the credibility of a conviction or helps us discover that the wrong person's in prison. The
1: legislation was introduced February 3rd, 2020. The bill, proposed by the Criminal Justice Subcommittee, rids the current law of language requiring a defendant to show how the DNA testing would exonerate the prisoner. It eliminates language that now allows the DNA testing only when there is a, quote, reasonable probability of acquittal, unquote. Instead, the proposed bill says that forensic analysis should be allowed when it might be material to the identity of the perpetrator or accomplice.
0: No, I I was just going to say, I think this, uh, Mr. Chairman, this is a good bill. Uh, There's many individuals over the years uh, have cried out to say they have been uh, wrongfully incarcerated. And I think we're moving, the state is moving in the right direction. I just so happen to know several of those individuals. Some now has already passed on. So I think that uh, this is a good step.
1: That was a state representative talking at the hearing about the legislation. The bill unanimously passed that subcommittee. It has a few more steps to go. If it passes this session, it will become law July 1st. I asked Ayala about this proposed law recently.
5: Well, I mean, possibly when I eat. I, let, me, let me be careful how I answer that because I think that does change it. In this case, DNA is not going to establish as a matter of law or a matter of fact that he didn't commit the crime. DNA will allow his attorneys to argue that, but it doesn't, it doesn't take the case out of court. Even if that DNA existed, that, that those ways of testing existed in 1976, we would still be in a situation where there are witnesses that give the state a basis to believe that he was the one who committed the crime. So while there may be, you know, some who may think that there's reasonable doubt, may think that there's another theory of the case, it's not as if the presence of DNA suddenly embraces the direct testimony that has been given at that time.
1: I have to admit, I was surprised by Ayala's decision not to allow the DNA testing. I heard her say she supported measures that got at the truth, but then she didn't support what might shed light in Ziegler's case. So I asked her about it again
5: the same question in different ways as if like I'm trying to block him from getting his DNA like I don't believe in blocking the truth and blocking like the pursuit of evidence what I also don't believe in is not having a solid ground other than just emotional arguments to justify overriding the law that has spoken multiple times if there are factual basis to do so I support it so like yes I support getting DNA For anyone who is going to bring us closer to truth and getting the actual truth, but making it blurry, I, I, I can't say that I completely support just blurring the issues. I think it needs to be clear of what is going to be established and that a person will walk away, not just, you know, oh, well, maybe we should hear it this way. Not another stab at the apple.
1: On a chilly morning recently, Tommy Ziegler arrived at a conference room on death row for an interview. He had chains around his wrists and stomach and ankles. He'd lost a few more pounds and was going to have some skin cancer cut off his ear. But he said his health was good. He said he'd done 500 push-ups that morning in his cell. He was disappointed, but not surprised by Ayala's decision.
3: I quit being, I, I, I quit being surprised. I quit being angry. Um, anger will destroy you. Anger's like cancer, it eats you up. And I just accept it and let it roll. And, and I don't believe that God Almighty we will let this stand. I have always, I've always had my faith. I was raised in a family that believed in justice, believed in the United States of America, believed in God. And for you to be raised in that type of an atmosphere, you have to believe that good is going to come out. You have to.
1: Ziegler said he felt like the unit's initial review was thorough and fair.
3: They said give him the testing. The, 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 the report part that I read even stated that I didn't get a fair trial. That's their words, not mine. I've been saying it for 44 years, but they finally said it. Okay. Okay.
1: I asked Worrell, who led the initial review of Ziegler's case, if she'd come to any conclusions about his guilt or innocence.
4: There was um, some evidence that supported his guilt, but there was, you know, also evidence that supported his innocence. So I, I, I think what you want to know is, do I feel in my heart that Tommy Ziegler is innocent? And the question is, I don't know. I mean, the answer, I'm sorry, is I don't know. I don't know, Um, there's nothing that speaks to me that says that he was definitely innocent. But I do believe that there's a doubt as to whether or not he was guilty. And that was enough to me to move forward.
1: Did you, you know, you looked over this case um, and your intern did too. What did you learn from it? Did you learn anything? about the system from it? Did you learn anything personally, Um, you know? No, I mean,
4: I've been a criminal defense attorney for 20 years. There was nothing about this case that I hadn't seen before from the defense side. The only thing about being the director of the Conviction Integrity Unit was that I was finally in a position to do something to right the wrongs that I knew existed in the system for two decades.
1: But you weren't able to write them though.
4: So what does that I mean? I wasn't able to
1: write I wasn't able to write
4: this wrong. But there were other cases that I worked on where we were able to
1: come to satisfactory resolutions. So if if there was anything you could say to Tommy Ziegler, what would it be?
4: I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you could be innocent and sitting on death row. I'm sorry that our system isn't better than that.
1: Catch up with the earlier episodes of Blood & Truth on major hosting platforms. And if you like the series, please rate and review us on iTunes. This podcast was written by Leonora Lapeter Le Anton and edited by Maria Carrillo. Interviews were recorded by Leonora Le Peter Anton and James Borchuk. This episode was produced by Allison Graves. Music by Emmett Cook and Firefly Music. To read the full series online, go to tampabay.com slash bloodandtruth.